0: The Fern Line is supported by the Alaska Rock Gym, providing quality indoor climbing to the Anchorage community since 1995. Alaska Rock Gym sports 20,000 square feet of climbing, an entire floor of boulder terrain, beautiful locker rooms, plus expanded cardio fitness and yoga rooms. Whether you're a seventh grader who runs laps up 512 to avoid doing your homework or a grizzled alpinist, training for an overland approach to Kehiltna Base Camp because you can't afford a bush pilot, the Alaska Rock Gym has something for everyone. Stop by any time to take a tour of the facility or check out the Alaska Rock Gym online at alaskarockgym.com. The Fern Line is also supported by the Moose's Tooth Pub and Pizzeria. Moose's Tooth has been a hub of the Anchorage community since 1996, offering a great selection of mouthwatering pizzas and salads, award-winning handcrafted beers, and incredible live concerts. I mean, what's better after a long day of skiing or climbing than talking about it with your friends over a backpacker pizza in a pitcher of Fairweather IPA? Not much. To peruse the menu or find out more about upcoming live events, check the Moose's Tooth out online at moosestooth.net. Hey Evan, did you hear that? Dude, it's a hoarding marmot. Looking for that last-minute piece of kit before heading into the hills? Make sure and stop by the Hoarding Marmot, Anchorage's finest outdoor consignment shop located in the heart of Spenard. The Hoarding Marmot has everything you need from high-end mountaineering gear, cross-country and downhill ski equipment, as well as a fine selection of local guidebooks, maps, and yummy trail snacks. Stop by the Hoarding Marmot next time you roll through town or check them out online at HoardingMarmot.com. All right, let's get to the show. friends, I'm Evan Phillips and you're listening to The Fernline, a podcast about the lives of mountain climbers. On season two, I'm chatting with alpinists and other outdoor enthusiasts who are pushing the limits of creativity in the mountains and in their daily lives. My goal is to have meaningful conversations with an extraordinary group of people, the folks who choose to live full value lifestyles in the most beautiful and wild regions on the planet. All right. Well, it's great to be back with you for another episode of The Fern Line. I'm really excited about season two. You're going to be hearing a lot of great conversations and interviews with unique, creative people who are doing great things in the mountains and in their lives. Before we dive in today, I want to remind folks that if you enjoy this podcast, there's a few simple ways you could really help out. The first is to give the podcast a review in iTunes or from within your favorite podcast app. You can also share links via social media, or you can go the old-fashioned way and simply tell someone directly. And if you're one of those listeners that finds yourself anxiously awaiting the next Fernline episode, you might consider becoming a backer on Patreon. Patreon's a platform that allows you, the listener, a way to directly support this show each month through whatever dollar amount you choose. I like to look at it as a voluntary subscription of sorts. Just keep in mind that whatever amount you choose to kick down really helps keep this podcast a viable and sustainable endeavor for me moving forward, which really does make a big difference. To find out how to become a backer on Patreon, you can go to thefernline.com and click Support the Fernline. And there's also links in the show notes. If you want to get in touch, you can reach me directly at thefernline at gmail.com. I can't even tell you how many emails I've gotten in the last year. Uh, I've gotten emails from all over the world. Some people just want to say hello. Some folks want to let me know what a certain episode meant to them. And some folks have even let me know that the podcast has inspired them to come to Alaska to do climbing, which I think is incredible. And ultimately, if people are inspired by this podcast, that's really the only motivation I need to keep doing it. So make sure you reach out and say hello. All right, so with that, it's time to grab your favorite beverage and get cozy on your couch or camp chair and settle in for this episode of The Fern Line. On today's episode of the Fern Line, we'll get to know legendary North American alpinist Conrad Anker. Over the course of a distinguished thirty-plus year career in the mountains, Anker's adventures have taken him from the big walls of Yosemite to the icy flanks of the Alaska Range, the Himalaya, and Antarctica.
1: I come alive.
0: Although Anchor is probably best known for discovering Mallory's remains on the north side of Everest in 1999, it's his earlier adventures in Alaska that I've always been fascinated with. That's why I was excited to sit down with Conrad this past February to talk about his formative experiences in the mountains, the friends and partners that meant the most to him along the way, as well as his efforts in environmental activism. Having flown to Alaska to teach a workshop at the Valdez Ice Climbing Festival, Conrad was able to squeeze in an early morning chat with me at his hotel in Anchorage before catching a flight back to Bozeman. We started our conversation by talking about his early outdoor experiences with his family, how that led him to Utah, and ultimately to a friendship with another legendary alpinist, a climber named Mug Stump.
2: My family's from Central California, so my uh, father's side of the family's from Big Oak Flat, Tuolumne County, and my mother's from uh, Dresden, East Germany, and my dad was uh, in the service after the Second World War, met my mom, and then brought her back to uh, Big Oak in that area, so I was born in San Francisco, um, lived in California, and then um, sort of the beauty of being there was that, um, with my grandparents, we'd get out every weekend in summer and we'd do these backpack trips. And So going outdoors was what we did. That was, that was recreation for our family. When I got started, it was in the day when backpacking was still a thing. Maybe backpacking will come back because it's kind of hipster-type stuff, and I could see the hipsters, I'm like, we got a backpack, yeah, it's cool.
0: With external frame
2: backpacks. Of course, and skinny <laughs> jeans and stuff like that. So they'll be like, oh, check this out, 63 Everest. They were fully retro. But um, getting back into the outdoors was always um, sort of the key thing. And so we started out backpacking, doing trips like that, and peak bagging. But it wasn't until I was uh, 14 that I did a, a roped climb. And so it was um, – but it was different. So 14 was – 1974, we didn't have climbing gyms. Um, There wasn't like a way to um, find out about climbing. There was a a guide school, one in the Tetons, one in Rainier, one in Yosemite, but it wasn't like it was that easy. There wasn't a community to find it. And so if you became good at backpacking and doing those type of skills, then you would graduate and move up into uh, climbing. Nowadays, people can be introduced to climbing by going to the climbing gym. It's a it's an alternative to lifting weights in front of a mirror, and it's a lot of fun. You get to meet people, so they're into it, but they don't have this um, uh, the wilderness, uh, backcountry-type ethic. Unless, of course, you live in Alaska, and then <laughs> you're all about the wild. Yeah, I uh, attended school in Salt Lake City at the University of Utah. So three different types of rock there, and skiing and ice climbing. So it was a good place to be um, a student. I enjoyed it, and it was a good... It's good to, to be part of that. and so, But the skills there that um, one would need in the mountains, ski touring and avalanche awareness, ice climbing on steeper terrain, and then rock climbing, they're all available there. And um, So go down to Zion, you can climb a big wall or drive out to Yosemite, and you've got a um, the big wall of all big walls, El Cap, to, to practice on. And it was um, in the mid-'80s when I was in Salt Lake getting... Uh, cutting my teeth, so to say. Um, Mug Stump was a, a local figure there, and he had uh, encouraged me to go out and go do climbing, and, and one of his the, the litmus tests was you have to do El Cap and you have to do Denali. So if you did those two peaks, you had the technical skills of climbing a big wall, and then you had the uh, skills to endure cold weather on Denali, so... Combine both those skills, and sort of that's the direction that I took uh, climbing, which is alpine big walls on granite peaks.
0: How did you first get connected with Mugs Stump? Muggs was a local
2: climber in the uh, Salt Lake area, so he came out uh, and was uh, there after he quit playing football. He said, "Ah, oh, this is this is it for me," and he was uh, in that right, area.
0: He was, like a, was he a running back or something? Yeah. At, like, defensive back or something? At Penn yeah. State?
2: Yeah, he was. Played with Joe Paterno and went semi-pro. And so it was, uh, it was, he always lamented that he was never introduced to climbing. And it, he was an athletic kid. And so that's what they, they put kids into football and <laughs> he said they'd play football and eat hot dogs all the time. <laughs> and the, the moms would feed him hot dogs. And so. Even in the '80s and '90s, it was like, yeah, I mean, it wasn't probably the best food for kids, but um, yeah. So he had been out there, and I had met I met Mugs at the um, a little Cottonwood climbing area, and just sort of struck up a conversation with him, and then progressively started doing more climbs.
0: Yeah, I, I grew up here in Alaska, and I um, got into climbing when I was about 17. I'm 42 now, but you know, back in the early to mid '90s. You know, this is a few years after Muggs had passed away, but to me and my small cadre of climber buddies, you know, he was kind of the person that we, like, looked up to, and we wanted to climb like him. And, um, it, you know, how did, how did you see Muggs back then? And, and it, to you, did he have some sort of vibe that there's something about him that, that you were drawn to?
2: Yeah, Muggs was definitely a force of nature. So there's um, people that you meet that are really... Strong and charismatic, and they have a presence about them. And Muggs was certainly that person. So, I mean, he was a a striking fellow and was dedicated to climbing and the pursuit of climbing. And the climbs that he got after and the ones that he saw were all um, driven by that focus. And so, that um, it was interesting because he kind of came through the transition of sport climbing, which carried over into mountain climbing but rock climbing was a uh, began in mountain climbing so starting from the bottom up and all those things and so now we have a a much different look on and and take on that collectively but Muggs was a a, a traditionalist which gave him that edge and gave him that that uh that presence and um yeah it was i remember one time we got pulled over (laughs) and the uh the law enforcement officer was I was like totally chicken. I'm like, Oh no. Muggs like talk to guy. I was like, What are you doing getting in here? It's like, Whoa well, dude, that would never have been me. <laughs> i was like, Yeah, you registration and insurance and license, yes, sir.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> like when you think back on, on the time that you spent with Muggs and you know, I'm sure we could spend an hour just talking about, you know, your relationship with him, but um, when you think back on the time that you did spend with him, what did you learn from Muggs?
2: He would go through like a, a game day ritual. So um, like when you would leave to go up a wall, he'd be like, yeah, this is like going out and playing in the Orange Bowl. Or he played some big bowls. And that must have been a—for a young man, that must have been a, a big thing to have 20,000 people cheering you on as you go out there. <laughs> There's like two of us sitting in the tent <laughs> on the coffee glacier— in the Ruth Gorge and being like yeah okay we're going to go up and do this but there was sort of that, that motivation that, that uh, things and then the other one is it's uh, never that bad so he was always like yeah so but he also he pushed me so it was always um, he'd be like well I know I can lead this let's see if you can so you take the, uh, the sharp end and so and now it's my turn to relinquish the reins to the next generation which is a great thing to do
0: And then uh, my last question, I guess, about mugs is, how do you see his influence today in alpinism and climbing? Well,
2: one way, is the obvious way, there's the Mug Stump Climbing Grant, and so that uh, gives money to keen, motivated young alpinists, or alpinists of any age, I guess, doesn't matter, so um, if they have a good project. So there's a way that's kept in there. But um, that style um, of climbing, so... Um, here in Denali, on uh, the, soloing the uh, the Cassin, doing that quickly, um, that was uh, certainly transformative in how we look at mountains. And most of the skill and what we do collectively is is small increments, bit by bit. So the the overall difficulty grade in sport climbing inches up very, very slowly in over a decade or two, and it's done by consensus and vetting and the whole team like that. And so, and now faster and lighter and more demanding climbs and um, that really going without any gear on the big mountain routes is sort of the, um, that was, uh, Muggs had a vision about that and it's, it's high risk sport but it's interesting to see that it's taken hold and people are practicing that in the Himalayas.
0: I'm done pretending that I could be someone who's ascending all the ladders of this world, but I got someone that I can hold on to, and it's you, yeah, it's you. I guess I've grown up, taking my sweet time. Maybe in 1987, Conrad had his first experience in Alaska when he and a close knit group of friends applied their big wall skills to Gurney Peak and the Kachatna Spires. The team had a positive experience, making the second ascent of the peak and solidifying lasting friendships along the way. For Conrad, the trip laid the foundation for other expeditions to Alaska, including routes on Middle Triple Peak, as well as an impressive new line on the northwest face of Mount Hunter. But maybe more important than the actual climbs was the friendship he shared with Seth Shaw, I asked Conrad to talk about those adventurous years and how he remembers his good friend Seth today.
1: Um,
2: the American Alpine Club has the... Uh... The fellowship grant for climbers under twenty-four. So, <laughs> in '87, I was uh, under twenty-four, and we applied for a grant. Um, and thanks to Muggs he gave us a picture. He's like, ah, "Send this one in; they'll, they'll grant you some money for sure." And so, I think we put a grant in for the the I forget the name of the Young Fellowships Award climbing thing, but we got uh, I don't know, a hundred dollars each. We were a team of four, so we were four hundred bucks. <laughs>
0: hey, you don't have money to so yeah. so,
2: And we drove a uh, Ford Econo line from Salt Lake all the way up. So it was uh, Seshaw, Rob Ingle, and James Garrett, and myself, the four of us. And that was our, um, flew in with Doug Eating, landed on the Trident Glacier, had to go up over the pass um, to get over to the Southern Exposure, and that's where we began the southeast face of uh, Gurney Peak. And it was uh, the second ascent of the peak and the first um, the climb of that wall of that size. And it might be the peak still hasn't been climbed for a third ascent, but um, so that was, it was a great trip, and it was neat to be there, and that was uh, my first Alaska experience, and so we uh, went to the, the Kachatnas, and it was a beautiful trip, portal edges, and we are just young, and it was, um, but it was kind of set the type of climbing that I've pursued in my career, which is wall climbing in an alpine setting, and specifically on granite rock, so, um,
0: can you can you talk a little bit about the climbing on that route? Because I don't I don't really know much about it. But what what was what was the climbing
2: like? Oh, it, on Gurney was, here's one, five nine A two, <laughs> five ten A three, yeah. five eleven A four. So you have three grades you can do it. So you have the Becky grade, and then you have like the next generation. Becky's five nine A two, just like one blanket grade. Oh, there it is. Everything will you'll find, and so. But, um, yeah, it wasn't, it was aid climbing up granite cracks, and we saw really nice, there were some really neat geologic features there, so, um, vugs, but we didn't take any crystals out, so there's bad luck if you pull a crystal out on a mountain that you're climbing, so, Mm -hmm. look up the story of uh, Jack Lewis and Tom Bauman on the uh, eye tooth, so, Another little sub-story of, of arcane uh, Alaska history. Yeah. and so, But we didn't, um, there's uh, just one of those little things that we do. But that was, it was a beautiful mountain. It was neat to be in there. We were there in the month of April. And then um, that was 87, 89, came back to the Alaska Range. And Seth Shaw and I climbed the northwest face of Mount Hunter. Um, so it was uh, a young guy's route. Um, I wouldn't go do it now. There's a cornice up there, but hey (laughs) when you're young you're like roll the dice and you like and accept that level of objective hazard if I go fast enough I'll get through the uh, potential danger and so don't do that anymore
0: you know I don't know much uh, about Seth other than it it seems like he was a a real strong climber Um, you know I I remember you know when I was really young kind of seeing some stuff about him in the magazines as well Uh, and uh, you guys must have had some sort of connection if you were you were doing those those routes together in that time um what what was your guy's partnership like and uh maybe just talk a little bit about seth
2: great guy unfortunately, he lost his life in a uh crevasse fall in uh May of two thousand on the in the ruth gorge so um but um yeah, Seth and I got to know each other in eighty one we were both living at Park West, which was um kind of the the family style ski resort up at Park City it's since been bought and turned into a place with condominiums and coffee shops and what like Um, but it was kind of neat back then and Rick Wyatt was on ski patrol legendary skier and climber in the Utah area and so he kind of helped Seth and I get our feet going and climbing and so we climbed together in, in Utah and then forging off into the greater ranges. So we were kind of, um, I'm tall and lanky, and he was built like a fireplug, so we <laughs> we complemented each other in that sense. And he was an incredibly strong rock climber, sport climber, um, and would be able to do uh, those. Uh, and was dedicated to uh, finding adventure in the mountains, and so that was it was neat. And, and when he passed away, he was at that point in life where it wasn't about material things or money or or allocates that you might get from your peer group. Work-wise it was about working to save up to go climb and that's... Um, I kind of like that. There's a simplicity to that and it for whatever we can... We can debunk that or take it apart philosophically saying that, oh, they're not contributing to society or anything like that. But at the end of the day, if you're not harming other people and you're not harming yourself and you're minimizing your harm to the environment, just by being alive or harming the environment, if you can keep those three in there and you keep them within that, um, uh, pursuing a life of of alpine climbing is, is, is respectable and noble from my view. So. (laughs) <laughs> Sorry, all you parents out there if I've just uh, sent your kid like, <laughs> Mom, I listen to the podcast. Conrad says, "Go buy a sprinter van, go hang out in the valley. Be climbing finger locks all day long.
0: Creativity might be the most important trait an alpinist can possess. We spend our time dreaming about places we want to go. We study maps and photos, looking for beautiful routes and aesthetic lines we want to pursue. A creative mind gives us options and fuels our imagination to make special things happen. I asked Conrad to talk about the importance of creativity, how he applies it to his personal life, as well as his experiences in the mountains.
1: Somewhere
2: Yeah, there's uh, creativity. It just doesn't happen. You have to think about it. And once you understand the process, then good ideas come. So I like to think of myself as a creative person. So some of the things that um, I've done, Jennifer Lowe, my wife, um, and I created the Kumbu Climbing Center. So vocational training. And that was a a creative way of giving something back. And then we created something on that. Um, Small innovation. Uh, steps and product that I use in the outdoors might be considered that. But probably the biggest way to see creativity in an alpine climbing is how you choose the line you climb on the mountain. And so if it's the, it's called the blank canvas, but whatever, um, it's not blank. It's a mountain. <laughs> There's a line up it. So how do you choose that line? And so um, I look at safety as um, the first thing. It has to be... Um, as safe as possible. No climbing is absolutely safe. But if it doesn't hike underneath a a calving serac, then it it scores points on that. A ridge would be better in that sense. And then um, the aesthetic beauty of that line. If you look at the line, you're like, oh, that's where we go climbing. So that was uh, one of the nice things about the Meru climb is that you can show the picture of the pillar and you you can be a... Uh, someone that's in 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 Delhi that's a Indian national you'd be like, Oh, there's where you go climbing or you can be someone that it lives in the Midwest and doesn't know anything about climbing, you're like, Oh, you'd go there because that's that the where you wanna go and the casino on Denali is a great example of like, well there's the line. That's the line that you wanna climb. And so that um there's creativity that goes into that part of it. You look for, for a one pitch or multi-pitch, you look for good movement, but you really won't know that until you do the climb. So, but with an alpine climb, you look at the mountain and then you'll kind of suss out where you'd want to go climbing, what you want to do. So I'm pretty specific. I'm, um, I seek out granite, so using geologic maps to find granite um, and then going to where those ranges are. Um, sedimentary rock's great and limestone's awesome but for alpine climbing it just its too dangerous for me and it's always exfoliating and coming down so there are peaks that are worth it but um, they're not the steep ones so the steep ones tend to be granite and um, there's um, that connection to it so um, that would be yeah. sort of um, the, the core of it um, is outdoors and Traditional alpine climbing it would be focused on granite peaks, and that would be the the prism through which I look at uh, route selection. <laughs> cool.
0: So kind of changing gears a little bit, um, what is it that you most look for in a partner in the mountains?
2: The underpinning of what climbing in alpine uh, life and being outdoors is the way that humans connect with other humans. And that's the special part of it after being in the mountains now for 40 plus years it's the way that humans connect with other humans that's the meaningful part of it and that as a community we as climbers have been able to take that value set and bring it into the climbing gyms and so when people go to climbing gyms it's that supportive um it's that you can do this and you got it and give it another go and get on the send train and that that enthusiasm and and cheering that we have Oh, you share a good times so yeah. <laughs> it's if you've been through if you've experienced hardship together there's that little bit of comfort so even with friends i did a trip 20 years ago we get together and we sit down at the table and you're like wow this is great it's a cup of coffee <laughs> we didn't have to melt it we didn't have to fire up the stove and so it puts it into perspective that with that and that that support that you have to have for your teammate is um there's not many things in today's culture that foster that and require it in terms of human interaction. So finding it and climbing is a pretty good thing. Looking at the people I like to go climbing with, um, they're someone that's safe and secure, that's not accident prone, someone that's an optimist, someone that's not a a sugar hoarder or too absorbed with the self, so to say, um, and then. A willingness to uh, endure a little bit of suffering and pain, because it's no mystery. Alpine climbing isn't difficult. You just have to have a a high pain threshold, and you just trudge along and fire your stove up, and thank God you have good sunsets and sunrises. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, a little bit of humor is good. It's a way of um, taking the edge off the situation, and so there's the much studied firemen's humor. So, what you know, what humor they use in the firehouse, and they're dealing with um, very emotionally challenging situations on a daily basis and professionally, and they're and they're geared for it. So, humor is a way of taking that off. So, um, but um, yeah, there's there's time for humor and there's time for when it's not um, when it's not the uh, the best part of it. So, but um, yeah, you just um I like puns. Sarcasm is 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 can be tricky because you can really hurt someone's feelings when you don't realize that you think you're just being funny or something like this. So but with uh, some of my climbing partners it's you know like Honnold, he's convinced that I can't climb anything more than 5'8", and so I'm like, well, dude, if you knew how to run a stove, you'd actually be a climber, so <laughs> we just spoke fun at each other with that, and we have permission, so to say, so that's a good.
0: It's always exciting to get an opportunity to chat with someone you've looked up to throughout the course of your life, and this is certainly how I felt talking with Conrad. It's also easy to blow up people in your minds as being superhuman or some sort of rock star because of the things they've accomplished. But even though Conrad is world-famous, he's probably one of the most easygoing, humble, and down-to-earth people I've chatted with since starting the podcast, and to me, that's pretty inspiring. Before we ended our conversation, I wanted to make sure Conrad touched on his thoughts about environmental action, as well as some of his future goals in the mountains. But before we got there, I asked him to describe what it was like to free climb the second step on Everest, the highest technical climbing in the world, which he accomplished in 2007 with his partner, Leo Holding.
2: So a little background history on this. Um, The second step is at uh, um, it's about uh, 8,700 meters on Everest, and so it's on the northeast ridge. And if George Mallory and Sandy Irvin were to have summited in 1924, they would have had to have free climbed. The second step, free solo up and free solo back down. So 99, the first Everest expedition I was on at the uh, the time that I came across the frozen and well-preserved body of George Mallory, um, had to go at the second step, but the ladder was there, and I matched feet on it. So I was like almost there, but I grabbed the draw, sort of figuratively speaking. But and why did I do it? Well, to paraphrase Mallory, because the ladder was there. <laughs> so if the ladder wasn't there, it wouldn't be good. So it was kind of, it was, um, it, uh, it was on me. But at the same time, there was um, a film outfit out of the U.K. Uh, with uh, Anthony Geffen, a film uh, director producer that wanted to make a film a biopic about Everest and from coming from a UK outfit it was really good and so Leo came along and so we had that mentorship between Mallory and Irvin and replicated with Leo and I um, which was nice and then we had permission from the Chinese Mountaineering Association which is the outfit that gives you permission to climb on Everest to pull the ladders from the second step so we um, were up there, Furbatashi and his uh, team of uh, Sherpas that were with us pulled the ladder and then they were on top. Um, they ran some cameras and then um, free climbed the second step. That, uh, But it was, I was looking at some images and I have a, a butt shot and it looks like, it looks dinky, but it's always like, well, it's bigger than what it is and so you can't really uh, get the idea of the size. But when we let it, I had a, um, uh, a number four um friend so that was the number it was the lightest weight big friend at the time without carrying up a jumbo and then a two by four stack and that's how i protected so i hauled up a piece of wood full (laughs) x-caliber yosemite style and put the stack in there and then uh, it had a little keeper leash on it. it was cute and that's what i protected the second step with and then went out and um face climbed on some of the edges and was able to uh a couple of the pitons in there so um and it's it created quite a bit of controversy in 2007 when um we were there and so um and we were unequivocally the first team to 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 do it 100 percent free with photo documentation and that's um so a lot of people came up out of the woodwork and they're like oh i sold it then and i i did this and it was easy there was snow there and it was um there was uh it was, Everest is sort of a lightning rod for controversy and stuff like that but at the end of the day it's the highest free climbing on the planet so there's <laughs> you can't it's higher than the summit of, of K2 and there's no more technical climbing on the uh, south side so that second step was um, but it was uh, took my um, I climbed it with like mittens and, and, and double boots with crampons on and so a lot of channeling dry tooling type climbing and, and the skills that I had and if we look at the level of climbing, as I was introduced to it, and how each successive generation has gotten better to it, and the gear and the technique, um, and Leo being one of the most talented traditional climbers of his generation, that we still found it challenging, um, gives you an idea of the severity of that route.
0: Yeah. It looked hard. I mean, you know, I have I have pretty minimal experience with altitude. I, I spent a few, few years doing work up on Denali when I was younger, and so you know, that, uh, that's tough enough. And then, you know, I've done some, did some stuff in South America, but never, never anything in the Himalaya. And it just, but I have a, I have a context for it because I know uh, I got quite sick the first time I went on Denali or just, you know, was when I first really experienced what altitude felt like. I'm like, Oh, this is what I've been reading about in freedom of the Hills. I I get it now, but man, it's a, it's just got to be a whole different ball game to try and, climb at that level at that altitude so kudos (laughs) um and I guess since we're touching on Leo you know I just I think I follow him on Instagram or something but I just saw this expedition that that he went on he seems like a really obviously really talented athlete but he seems like just a really kind of fun guy what's it been like for you to kind of watch him go off and do these expeditions that he's doing
2: yeah i first met leo he was probably 16 or something and so loaned him a portal edge and a haul bag and they um got after el nino on el cap so uh, he and patch i think it was his buddy they went and climbed it but um yeah leo's been um completely yeah he's one of my heroes so um he and Jesse have two kids. They're doing well. He just got back from this trip to Antarctica where they went to climb the Scepter. And the Scepter was first climbed by Mug Stump. And um, his uh, brother Ed Stump was on a uh, geologic ge- geology exhibition. I think Lyle Dean was with him on that. But they skied to uh, the Scepter and then climbed that peak for the second ascent and then skied all the way back out. So, um, but yeah, Leo's... Um, he's great it's wonderful to count him as uh one of my peers as a professional climber i mean we're it's an odd way to make a living we're all kind of patching it together and figuring things out as we go and we're it's kind of about storytelling and whatnot and i guess in my case it's hanging in there being an old guy with dignity and and finding the next generation getting them totally excited for mountain adventure
0: I just listened to the, the recent interview that you did with Dugald uh, for The Cutting Edge. And he had asked you about kind of the whole stuff that you had been through a couple years ago. And in a couple interviews, I've kind of heard you touching more on like, yeah, I'm, you know, things are changing. I'm, I am get, you know, I'm getting older, you know. And, but I've also, I can tell when you talk about that stuff that uh, climbing is still very very at the core of who you are and very important to you are you processing at all what it might be like to not be able to do that in the back of my mind i've always had it so okay i'm gonna take a bad
2: fall so i'm 55 i break my hip or my knee or my ankle or my bone and that's kind of it for my career i'm not gonna re-knit back like you do when you're in your 20s and 30s so that was um and in this case, on the March sixteenth of twenty sixteenth, when I had the coronary incident in Nepal, it was I was an asymptomatic patient. It kinda of came out of nowhere, so I was really set aside by it. But going into that, always in the in my mind, I've psychologically prepared myself for not being able to climb. And so when that day comes, I'm I'll be I, I can read, I can paint, I can find creative ways I can do things with my hands I can learn another language um, and then if I can't use my hands I mean I'm always like it could always it's never going to be that bad I can't if I don't have it and so planning your succession both from a career Um, life goals thing is a good thing, but then also with your pastime and what drives you, what your passion in life is. And for me, that's climbing. And so post heart attack, I can still get out. I can still climb. I can still lead ice. And so I'm feeling good with that. So I'll I'll keep doing it. Um, But if if it was set up that I couldn't do it, that I would find something that would provide happiness, but I would not look back in remorse that i wasn't able to do what i've done so i'm happy to if all the climbing i've done ended today then that would be i would be happy with it but i wouldn't starting tomorrow be like oh darn it i'm not i'd find something to to be uh optimistic about so what we all want is dog energy and people are like what's dog energy and you're like you you're dogs if you've if you're a friendly person, you have friendly dogs, right? But they come in, you open the door, and they're like, dude, where have you been? Yeah. <laughs> Whoa. She's just totally excited and happy to see you. So I'm like, I want to have dog energy with every person that I encounter. So there's, like, friendly. It would be a friendly, happy dog. Yeah. You know, I want to come up and be friendly. And so that's always, I always get the simple things in life. So. <laughs>
0: this might be an obvious question, but what's important to you today in your life?
2: My family, my wife, Jennifer Lowe, anchor, she's awesome. So, and our family's important. Um, Two out of the three boys have graduated from university. So Isaac's finishing up. He's a junior at Western Washington. So that's kind of an important thing to have the boys um, uh, finish up schooling and then to do something in society and be part of society. They're all it's great. I'm totally happy for the most important part. And then um, where I am today and at my age, it's, yeah, we're going to live out the next 20 to 30 years with plenty of carbon and it's going to be great and I'll be able to jet set around the mountains and do the things I love to do. But there is something that we need to be thinking about in our generation and that is the shape and the health of the planet. So we are the first generation to fully understand what anthropogenic climate change is, and how it's affecting the natural world—the natural world that supports us—and it's been said that we might be the last generation to be able to effectively do things on that. So, raising awareness of that is a really key part of what I do. So, um, this is kind of a silly joke: how do mountains hear? They hear with mountaineers. So we are the ears and the eyes of the mountains. And if you think about it, people that climb outdoors particularly in alaska and, and, and high altitude high um, latitude places are are climbing on glaciers and permanent snow and that's changing and so along with um people that go uh, diving on reefs that look at coral um and there's a whole group of recreationists that their whole thing is to is to see coral and catalog it and help out but um they're seeing the bleaching events in Coral. We're seeing the glacial recession. And, and our two recreational pastimes are the most directly affected by climate change. If you play tennis, it doesn't. We'll still be able to play tennis when it's 120 degrees. You just air condition the damn building. But <laughs> golf, we're like, okay, you know, as long as it's warm and we can create the golf course. But it's not a natural environment that is requires that. Um, participation with a changing environment. So kind of teaming together with the um, people of those type of – that see that recreation. So being a voice to get things done. And it's – there's no doubt within the last year that many of the things that we stand for as climbers, which is trust, value, communication, honesty – I got you those sort of like bedrock foundations. Those things are being eroded. And the goodwill and the good name of the United States is we're squandering it. And so I've got to put my shoulder to the wheel, and we've got to bring that back. And so from our public lands to um, Native rights to how we interact with other humans, I think there's a responsibility as citizens of the United States that we have to make the world a better place. One, because we have a great education system, and secondarily, is we consume a lot of energy. So if we're going to consume this amount of energy per capita, which is off the chart, it's huge, we need to give something back, and that is in technology. And how are we going to solve the carbon conundrum and make this planet habitable for the 7.5 billion people we have today and the 9 to 11 billion people we'll have in 20, 30 years? So... Um, I wake up at night and I'm like, what the, what's, what's going to be going on in 200 years on planet Earth? And so I think back 200 years and the United States and Manifest Destiny and, and Lewis and Clark and all those stories that went in there. And then you were like, wow, um, <laughs> where are we at now and what's it going to be like in 200 years? But it'll be good. I'm an optimist.
0: <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, I just got one, one more question. Um, and I know a lot of climbers don't want to talk about what their next plans are, but what would you still like to do? You can be a little vague about it if you want, but what would you still like to do uh, as a climber, as an alpinist?
2: It's always nice to have bucket list things to do. I'd like to uh, ski across the Yellowstone ecosystem in winter and do like a three week over the winter journey to go over from the north and Bozeman where I live down to Jackson. So that's kind of a a neat ski tour thing that i've have, i have in mind it won't be technical but just being on the land and being remote unplugging from the world would be a great thing um i'd still like to do an expedition a year similar to one that we did in queen maud land here with the north face um, in uh, december so i wasn't the lead climber on there but i helped organize it and i've got camp experience and then bringing in a team and so doing one expedition like that would be great um and, yeah, it, uh, <laughs> granite peaks in the Himalayas, <laughs> my bad habit. Oh, I'd like to go back, but I I have to balance that out yeah. with what is good for the family. But yeah. there is, um. but I do, um, one of the things that, uh, for Jennifer and I, that we're really excited about is the Kumbu Climbing Center Vocational yeah. Training. And so we're now 15 years into that. We have a building that's uh, finishing up. And so... Um, giving some degree of permanence to the training program that uh, is there for the nepali people to be better in the mountains to be safer in the mountains and that's been a intrinsically it's been a great project to be part of and getting to know the people um, of nepal
1: so
2: so cool well, last bucket list, I would like to free climb El Cap, but I'm going to have to <laughs> I would be like, okay, no more, no more, like treat donuts or ice cream. I have like to live a monk's life and <laughs> really train for that. But that would be a bucket list goal. But um, yeah, parting thoughts: hold fast, all storms pass. So if you're in doubt, then just weather the storm. It'll it'll be smooth sailing again. So that's kind of keeps in that. And then the other one is: be good, be kind, be happy. There's um goodness and kindness those two together create happiness so there's a little life motto thing so there um, it's great to have uh, podcasts uh, coming up and, and going and it's a it's a great way for our tribe to communicate with other people and at the end of the day climbing is a tribe and if you're a climber the art of belaying and what goes into belaying is an international language and you'll meet someone from mongolia or from rwanda or nepal or iran wherever there'll be a climber and you'll have an instant connection with them so know that um it's sort of like this you'll have friends around the world when you when you're like oh you're a climber and it's amazing you'll be a climber and they'll be like Oh wow, great, come to our climbing gym, come to our local crag Next thing you know you've got a friend and you're planning a trip And you're doing something adventurous And that sort of uh, unplanned joy in life is what we live for
0: Thanks for hanging out with me today. I hope you got as much out of Conrad's stories as I did, and I hope you can apply some of his immense alpine wisdom to your next trip in the mountains. Don't forget to review the podcast on iTunes or within your favorite podcast app, and if you'd like to support the Fernline from the ground up, please consider supporting the show each month on Patreon. And finally, if you enjoy the tunes you hear, you can check out more of my music on iTunes, Spotify, Bandcamp and EvanPhillips.net Until next time I'm Evan Phillips and this is The Fern Line